Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. I hope you are having a wonderful day today. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, my guest is Robert Common. Robert oversees the beekeeper group of companies in Thailand and Cambodia, which includes his role as founder and group CEO of the Beekeeper House. He has worked extensively in social work and mental health for over 18 years. In addition to being a psychologist and a psychotherapist, he is a clinical trauma specialist and a Tibetan sound bowl instructor. He is a former director of service provision and still works part-time as an expert consultant for the United Nations on issues around violence against children and women. He is also an academic who researches and publishes work around childhood trauma. So today, Robert is going to talk about his own story and how he uses his story to help others, particularly when they're struggling with mental health issues and addiction and incorporating mindfulness, some Eastern philosophy, Buddhism into mental health work and how that has helped him turn his trauma into an incredible part of who he is. And so we're going to talk about moving from that state of trauma to the state on the other side of trauma where we maybe find more mental health. I really enjoyed talking to Robert and really aligned with his thinking and could see myself in a lot of the things that he also talked about. So I hope you enjoy this interview as well. And if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. I do read them. They mean a lot to me. And it's pretty amazing to see the impact that the Addicted Mind podcast is having on so many people. So I really appreciate that. And you can follow us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. So check that out as well. All right. Stay tuned for this episode. All right. Here we are on the Addicted Mind Podcast. My guest today is Robert Common, and he's going to share his story. But first, introduce yourself, Robert, and we'll talk about you and all the work you do with clients who are struggling with addiction and mental health. And also the other piece we didn't talk about before is just uh, advocating for 
the protection from you know women and children from violence and your work in that area as well. So we're going to jump into all of it. So Robert, introduce yourself and we'll kick it off from there. Yeah, thank you. So obviously my name is Robert and I am a mental health professional and I am the CEO of an organization called The Beekeeper. We are a mental health treatment company that specializes in working with individuals and also organizations in working uh, primarily around Buddhist mental health practices, but also using contemporary clinical psychology and blending that with Eastern philosophical approaches, which have now become more evidence-based in terms of their particular approach. So we work with individuals who have been affected not only by substance misuse, but also what we kind of term within the in the sector as comorbidities or other areas such as trauma, depression, anxiety, whatever they might be. Obviously, I have my own personal story in terms of what led me to becoming the CEO of this particular organization and founding and setting up of it. Do you mind sharing a little bit of that story? I find that like when we do this work and we're passionate about it, it usually comes from our own spirit or soul or experience, whatever you want to call that piece that that really drives us to want to help you. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in primarily in residential care. So I grew up in the UK, was boarding school. And my formative experiences during childhood were pretty abusive, physically, emotionally, and also sexually. When I left school, I ended up moving to London and becoming quite heavily involved in drugs myself. As a result of that, my life's trajectory became kind of more nuanced and I suppose more complex. It took me a long time and the discovery of my religion, which is Buddhism, to help guide me back onto kind of more safe path in life, a more mindfulness-based approach in life to help get me out of the quagmire that I found myself in. I had what I would probably, or what I suppose would be clinically described as a polysubstance misuse disorder during my 20s and my early 30s. And that was with the benefit of hindsight, primarily driven by trauma from my childhood. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection where the trauma and your Buddhism and how that started to work its way out for you as you found your way out of the addictive process and kind of the intersection of all those things? Yeah. So, I mean, from a theological perspective, Buddhism, we have the noble truths, which it, it do cover something called the inevitability of suffering. And my Buddhism and my faith led me to a really interesting place, which was not one necessarily of forgiveness, because that's not something I particularly believe in forgiveness, because I think forgiveness comes from a position of moral authority. I came to understand that the things that were done to me by the people that did them to me were done for a reason, reasons that I wouldn't necessarily ever understand. But for me to focus on the whys and the buts would never necessarily lead me to a place where I was able to reconcile those experiences 
with my own life and also my own ability to move forward. Buddhism really helped me with that significantly and has done and continues to, especially with everyday mindfulness-based practices such as kind of meditation, which continue to be a very important part of helping me find the balance, which is so important when one is trying to not necessarily resolve trauma, but learn to live with it and learn to understand that it's a part of who we are and it's a part of the experiences that we have. And I suppose most importantly, if I was to sum up what Buddhism has brought to my life was I wouldn't change what happened to me because I'm quite proud of who I am and I'm proud of what I've achieved in life. And I'm very proud of, in some ways, what the trauma I experienced has allowed me to experience in terms of my own sense and not to be too existentialist about this. But it's got me into a relatively good place. And I now understand, I suppose, perhaps arguably the human condition, maybe a little better or maybe with greater sympathy, if that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. And what kind of comes to mind as you're talking and I'm thinking, what interests me a lot is that space of in between where a person is moving from trauma to this space of like what I kind of hear you saying is maybe the word I would use is like acceptance, a peacefulness. Maybe that's not all the time, but there's that space of transition. And I would love for you to kind of talk about that process. Because I think when people are in trauma, the body is in this such hypervigilant state and so in a lot of pain and hurt and suffering. And there's this movement to something different. Yeah. And I think you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. A lot of what we do in our treatment is very aligned to, you may well have read the book by Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, Yeah, which for me was a seminal publication and is also very important to the way that my company and our clinicians work. In terms of my own journey, one of the ways that I would describe it was pre-spiritual kind of awakening, if you like, although that sounds a little grandiose, and post-engagement with mindfulness was the incredible levels of anger I had within myself, which I expressed through rage, through dysregulation, and I also expressed through consistent and ongoing substance misuse because I wanted to forget or not know or engage with the memories which I did not want to engage with. And what mindfulness and Buddhism taught me wasn't necessarily the thoughts and processes. It was more about my relationship and understanding with those thoughts. Can you, for people who may not be familiar with Buddhism and the noble truths, and can you talk a little bit about that so that they could have some understanding about a different way of thinking, right? Like you're in this position, like you said, filled with anger and rage and finding this other path to see life in a different way. And can you, I guess, maybe help listeners understand that individuals who may not know what that means, what you're saying? Yeah. So one of the ways 
Well, there are two ways I'd try and describe Buddhism. And I'm certainly no theologian by any stretch of the imagination. Is I think Buddhism can be summed up pretty easily, which is don't hate and don't hurt, which is a remarkably simple set of principles to, to live your life by. But I think more importantly, is obviously more complex than that. But the metaphor that I often use when I'm trying to describe my own personal beliefs, if I was to be walking across the street, and someone was to throw a rock at my head, most people's reaction, and if you ask them what the reaction would be, would be one of frustration, anger, upset. They would be incensed that someone had assaulted them. They would be enraged. In Buddhism, we try and cultivate a sense of love and compassion. And compassion is so fundamental to the way that we try and think about life. For me, if someone does something to me, that's just a question of self-perception. The second is, why? Why have they done that? What has led someone to do something which is considered to be socially so unacceptable, personally unacceptable? Right. What has happened to them? What psychological, social, or environmental factors have influenced them so much that they have done that? They've thrown that proverbial rock at my head. What trauma or set of issues have they been through? And that's where compassion comes in. Not they've thrown a rock at my head. That's a terrible thing to have done, but I'm going to be angry at you. It's more, oh my goodness, what's happened to you in order for you to think that's okay? That's what I was thinking. As you were saying too, it's like this transition to this very empathetic, compassionate state that then influences you as well as you manifest that thinking to, even though you've been hurt, to be able to try and see the other. Yes, we very much apply that in the work that we do because life is on a spectrum. It's on a continuum, isn't it? Yeah. And if we're looking at mental health issues, if we're looking at issues around substance misuse, all of it's on a spectrum which requires compassion in order to fully understand how those particular issues have manifested themselves within an individual. And I think that really leads to self-compassion. Absolutely. Self-compassion is incredibly important. Loving kindness and self-compassion it sounds very easy. And the one thing I will say about Buddhism, a whole swathe of other kind of philosophical beliefs, is that they, they sound very easy when we talk about them. So for instance, a very common phrase is, you can't love someone else until you love yourself. And I'm sure you've heard that many, many times. Many, many times. What does that really mean? For me, the bigger question is, do you like yourself? Are you friends with yourself? I'm a great proponent of someone who says, in order to start the beginning of the process of healing, you need to learn to like yourself and be able to sit down, take a long look at yourself and go, I actually, I like who you are. I rate you. I think you're a good person. And I think that's a much harder thing to achieve than these slightly lofty, goals of you must love yourself in order to love someone else. I think it's a much greater, much harder challenge to be able to say, I like myself and I'm friends with myself. And how does trauma pull us away from that? 
and take that from us. You know, the ability to care for ourselves, the ability to have compassion for ourselves. It's like, how do you see that? And how do you see trauma? It feels like it takes it away. I think it can take it away. And I think it can bring it together. And I would say the taking away component for me in my practice and through my experience has often been with trauma. And it's not isolated necessarily to just trauma, but also other mental health issues within individuals, is that we don't want to feel and we don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to feel the memories. We want to adjust the way the memories are perceived by ourselves and by others by either creating a new reality or by using substances or misusing those substances. When you think about the way that the brain works, the Mohican of the brain, when we use substances, we knock the Mohican of the brain offline. And that stops us feeling those symptoms, if you like, or the narrative of the trauma that we want to suppress. We haven't resolved and we're not ready to start beginning to address. But trauma can also be incredibly healing in many ways. And whereas hopelessness, disempowerment can often be the things that we focus on within trauma, you know, a great deal of people will experience what we call in psychology criterion B traumatic events, which are kind of the worst sorts of events that you can experience, which would then go on to lead to post-traumatic stress disorder or complex complex trauma. But the majority of people don't develop PTSD or complex trauma. They develop post-traumatic optimism. Yeah. And within our own narratives of complex trauma and PTSD, just because one doesn't develop a degree of optimism within one or two or three or five years, doesn't mean that we can't develop that optimism later on in the arc of our recovery. And that can be achieved through compassionate-based thinking or mindfulness-based thinking. It can be achieved through a whole range of different approaches. But it's certainly something that's available to us all. It sounds like as you work through this, you get to be able to see what I hear you describing, like the duality of it, that there's more parts to this than just this one piece that fills you with a lot of pain. There's this other part of it. And It can be a real gift to you in a way, like you said, you know, post-traumatic optimism where you can take that trauma and it can be a force for good, for healing, for helping others, for, you know, doing these things that are good for the world. Absolutely. I think in its most extreme form, I was sexually abused when I was seven years old from the age of seven to the age of 12. And rather oddly, if you were to ask me the question, would you change that? The logical response would be, well, of course I would, because no one wants that experience in their life. But then the counterpoint to it is allowed me to achieve an incredible level of understanding of my own psyche, my own subconscious, my own understanding of what relationships are. It's been a painful and it's been a very difficult journey. And it's one that continues to have its own ups and downs. But then it creates the inevitable question, would you change it? Because that then creates the question, would I change who I am today? 
And I have a wonderful family. I have a wonderful life. I'm surrounded by people that I care about deeply and know me, see me, understand me for who I am. I'm very public and honest about what got me to where I am. And would I change it? That's a strange question. And within Buddhism, one of our noble truths is the inevitability of human suffering. So for me, that's one of my noble truths. You can see that your trauma is now such a part of you in such a way that brings you all of these beautiful things, connection, compassion, kindness. I mean, the things that in a way I think we all seek, it can seem, I think, when you're in the midst of that deep suffering, so counterintuitive. Absolutely. And it is, and I'm sure you see it within your own clinical practice, that the space for optimism is there. And I always forget that wonderful quote by Viktor Frankl, between stimulus and response, there is that space. Yes. And I think that's the perfect summary of it, because there is a space between stimulus and response, where we would have been activated, we would have responded in a different way. And now when that happens to me, I think, and I reflect. And for me, that's been quite seminal in terms of the way that I conduct my entire life. Can you talk a little bit about how meditation and mindfulness, I imagine, is a big part of that process of creating that space for you to be able to do that, to take that in-between moment that Viktor Frankl talks about, to harness it, to see it. Yeah, so I think with mindfulness, everybody, or there are many different schools of thought, there are also individual practices. And when you get into mindfulness, it's important to develop your own practice that aligns with your own needs as they emerge and as they evolve. With my own personal practice, I struggled with meditation for a long time. And I started off with guided meditation, which really helped me get into it in a more systematic, regular way. Once I'd done that for a while, I began my own meditation practice using a technique that was taught to me by a Buddhist nun called Pima Chodron, who's pretty well known now. And she uses something called the Tonglen technique. I utilize that technique, but I don't adhere to one particular practice according to how I'm feeling. And the way that I meditate, I try and practice mindfulness is with my own meditation is I try and address the issues that I'm thinking about or most prominent in my thinking more directly. So it's a fairly confrontational form of meditation, which is not necessarily the way that you always think about meditation because a lot of people think you kind of sit around hitting tinctures and sitting there with your, your hands held up and sitting in a, in a sort of yogic position. I don't do that. For me, it's about confronting issues in my life head on. And what that does is it helps me stop reacting and helps me respond. So as opposed to reacting to something in my life, which might be upsetting me, it might be concerning me, it might be worrying me, it allows me to articulate a response with greater clarity and a kind of mental cohesion. I'm glad you say that because I think a lot of times, once again, kind of when I see clients come into my work and do this work, you know, there's this idea that you get to the spot where you don't have difficult feelings, you don't have difficult emotions, and 
that's not true. Like you said, life is still suffering. Things still happen. There still is pain in life, so to speak, that we have to walk through and manage and be with. Very much so. Day-to-day living will always throw up curveballs for all of us. And it also will be a timely reminder that just because one feels that one has inculcated one's own experiences into your own life and you're moving forward with perhaps that kind of post-traumatic optimism, it doesn't mean it's all resolved. It doesn't mean that everything's neatly tied up and there aren't still loose ends that won't occasionally rear their head and be a bit triggering or upsetting. And it doesn't mean that there aren't sometimes periods of my life where I'm reacting to something. And I think, why am I responding to this in this way? This doesn't make any sense to who I am and the way that I think about myself and what I've achieved and and my sense of self-identity. And yet, then I will go, well, hold on, let's try and think about this. And normally, nine times out of 10, it will go back to a particular piece of unresolved trauma or anxiety that's been generated by that trauma that I haven't quite resolved as well. I don't shy away from it. I try and own it. But that doesn't mean occasionally it doesn't own me without me realizing it. Yeah. And I think at the same time, that stuff also makes us who we are and in a way also enriches our life and helps us look deeper and at things that are difficult and to understand ourselves selves better. So question I have is how do you take all of this and take it into the work that you're doing now? Yeah. So the Beekeeper is a we're a mental health treatment center. And I'm very keen on using the words mental health as opposed to addiction. So we try and shy away from the word addiction, not because we have a problem per se with the word, but I think one always needs to be careful with words. So we're a treatment center that tries to look at substance misuse in all of its diversity, because substance misuse or addiction is a highly complex set of issues, which are anchored in every individual's particular needs and experiences. And one of the things that we at The Beekeeper are very proud of is that we don't take what could best be described as a cookie cutter approach to treating the primary symptomology of what would be classically termed as an addict. Because we think and we personally believe that it's not necessarily in the best interests of the client. So we try and meet the client where where they're at. And it's not that we subscribe to the medical model of the addiction model or the choice model per se. We try and think of ourselves as sitting in between because obviously there's significant evidence to support both theoretical positions, but the absence of evidence doesn't mean that evidence will always be absent. So we try and look at the inference that addiction or substance misuse is a chronic and lifelong condition, but we don't say it cannot be cured. Right. I can understand that. You know, as you're talking, I was thinking, you know, like this holistic approach of really getting to know the person. And I was going back to your analogy that you talked about earlier, the person throws the rock at your head. And the question you ask is, why would that person do that? 
to really get to know them, to really understand them and create the space for their experience to be present in a compassionate way. That's just what, I don't know, it just kind of came around to me in that way. Yeah, very much so. And I've listened to some of your brilliant podcasts and you've had some incredible experts talking about what physiologically happens to the brain when it comes to predictive patterns of behavior, especially with substance misuse. And our understanding of how the brain and behavioral patterns can evolve and change is evolving and changing almost as quickly as our understanding of it is. So obviously our understanding of elasticity of the brain is changing hugely. And that ties in very closely with what we do. We do a lot of work with yoga, different forms of meditation, different mindfulness practices, which are not a nice little bolt-on to our work. They're very much integral to our overall program. And they're very, very important. And they're the kind of what we do. And we combine that with strong clinical psychology. But we also know that mindfulness-based practices, such as yoga, meditation, will reduce the thickness of the hippocampus or that will reduce the size of the amygdala. So whereas with the addiction model, they're they're great proponents of the hardwiring of the brain. With the choice model, or maybe the mindfulness model, there's also evidence to indicate that there's great elasticity there. So it's an interesting debate. And as a scientist, as an academic, as someone who's also struggled with substance use issues as part of my adolescence and my young adulthood, almost losing my life to it on several occasions. I don't minimize how dangerous it is, but I also worry about the oppressive nature of the addiction model and the stigma that comes with being an addict. And that's a very nuanced statement because it sounds as if I'm very opposed to it. But in actual fact, I'm not because I can also see how for many people approaches such as the fellowship are incredibly useful for many people. And I would never denigrate that. I would never take that away from someone. But I would always say that there is a middle way. And I've worked with and been fortunate to be part of people's lives who don't consider themselves to be addicts per se, and have maybe come to us with a heroin problem and are able to have a beer at Christmas time with their father and be able to moderate. I do think there is that middle ground. And it's a hard area to navigate. I think it creates a space for everybody to be themselves in a way that works for them to find themselves and the space to explore that without stigma, without judgment, without some predefined notion of what our life should be. And finding that middle way, you know, goes down that road to me. So I'm definitely in agreement with you or aligned with you in that kind of thinking. I can understand what you're saying and the nuance of that. It's sometimes hard to conceptualize that thought process, but I get what you're saying. I definitely agree with that. And that's been my experience too with clients and in my own life. So yeah, I totally understand. That makes sense to me. It's a really interesting kind of complex interplay that I find with practitioners. And I think there are more of us who are looking at this issue when it comes to substance misuse 
in a less binary way. So it used to be you subscribe to one of these two models and that's it. And as someone who's a scientist and a research scientist, we don't do that in science. We have a theoretical position where there is evidence to support hypothesis, but the hypothesis is not proven. It's just supported. It doesn't become fact. So for me, I've always been very curious and will always be curious about how the science evolves around humans' relationship to substances and the interplay with mental health and looking at substance misuse as a symptomology of mental health issues. Now, I've seen a great deal, especially in grief counselling, of the phenomenon of kind of temporary alcoholism where a client would come to our services and present and hit the DSM-5 criteria for substance misuse for alcohol without a shadow of doubt. But they've just lost their five-year-old son. Right, yeah. And this would continue maybe for 18 months. And then after 18 months and some good talk therapy and the appropriate support, then they are no longer classified under the TSM classification as an addict. So under other classifications, they would still continue to be an addict. The ability to make room for all of these different ways of being, that there's not one thing here. You know, it's like a quote that I love, you know, beware the tyranny of the one right way, right? There is no right way. We have to find that. So, okay, Robert, we're getting to our time. As we wrap up, I love to ask every guest just one question. And that's if someone out there maybe is struggling in some way and you could tell them one thing, what would you want to say to them? What would you want them to know? I would always, always, always say the same thing, which is what I would have wanted someone to have told me in my darkest hours, which is there is hope and someone does care. You might not know who that person is yet. You might not have met that person, but I promise you, as long as the day I live, they do care and people will always surprise you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for saying that. That is beautiful. Where can people find you? How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, so my Instagram, my social is at Rob Common on Instagram. And then we are beekeeperhouse.com for the website as well. So people can connect with us and we're always open to supporting individuals as well. And I support as much as I can on my Instagram following too. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much for just coming on and you know, sharing your spirit, your wisdom. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Addicted Mind. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check them out there. You can get all the links. Everything you need about this episode is there. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and don't forget, click the subscribe button. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And I will talk to you on the next episode.
I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.